You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around and let me know what you want. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Try it out of the time! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's the liar! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've been mentally recovering from the attendance of my first bachelorette weekend. And damn, I'm old. I see why they want us to get married in our 20s. It's way harder to recover from a bachelorette when you are in your 30s. So yeah, I'm very tired and I'm also, well, I'm not tired anymore. I was tired all week. And I'm also like, my body really, really hates flying. Like I, um, even if I'm flying from time zone to time zone, so like I flew from Los Angeles to Seattle. So it's the same time zone. It's only a two hour flight. And it's not, so it's not even that significant of a flight. I still get jet lagged. So I, like my internal clock was off. Their sun schedule is so, I think it's the sun schedule that screws me up because their sun never sets. It's ridiculous. Or is this time of year when it's always, I don't remember. Doesn't matter. The sun is wonky there and I can't deal with it. It was also super warm in LA when I got back. And after a week in rainy Seattle and on top of already having to deal with my first like actual winter or California winter (laughs) for the first time in 10 years, I can't, I can't deal with weather. I can't deal with social stuff. I just can't deal right now. So I'm going to do my little microphone thing and be very happy that I don't have to be anywhere else today. So if you're one of my LA friends, hello, I miss you. And I will see you on Discord probably until next weekend. No movie theater movie reviews this week for obvious reasons. Uh, So let's just get right into this week's topic. This week, one of the first female rock bands to achieve mainstream success, paving the way for future female rockers and the film that was based on their story. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Long Beach native Sandy West had a dream, to play music professionally. More specifically, the 15-year-old drummer wanted to form an all-female rock band. That dream would come true starting in August 1975 when she met Kim Fowley, a local music producer. He gave her the phone number of another young musician in the area, guitarist Joan Jett. The two met, and before long, they were practicing together. They played for Fowley, who agreed to help them find other female musicians to round out their budding band. Sandy's mother would later wish that she chained her daughter to the bed and never let her leave with him. The band would be at odds with the eccentric giant for the duration he was involved with them. The group initially started out as a trio, with Mickey Steele doing double duty on bass and vocals, and the Runaways began playing the party and club circuit around Los Angeles. They soon added guitarist Lita Ford, and Jones switched to rhythm guitar. 
Steele later left the group and was replaced by bassist Peggy Foster, who left after just one month. Cherie Curie, who was recruited in a local team nightclub called The Sugar Shack, followed by Jackie Fox, who was discovered while dancing at a club, would fill out the classic lineup of the Runaways. Cherie would be lead vocals, and Jackie would play the bass. Neither of them were discovered while doing either of those things. They were completely chosen based on looks, and then they auditioned, and then they got in the band. It's gross. In hindsight, because it was a bunch of middle-aged men tracking down these women. It's... Yeah, like I said, technically, the lineup was created by two dudes who auditioned all of them. Music producers Kim Fowley and Sandy Perlman, as they'd liked the idea of this all-female rock band thing. 20 years after the foundation of The Runaways, Kim would state about his involvement, quote, I didn't put The Runaways together. I had an idea. They had ideas. We all met. There was combustion. And out of five different versions of that group came the five girls who were the ones the people liked. With the classic lineup finally set, the band was subjected to a boot camp of sorts ran by Fowley in which the five teens were forced to go through heckling drills, during which time Kim had the girls pelted with garbage cans and toilet paper and mic stands and whatever you could think of to prepare for that potentially happening during an actual gig. This left the girls frustrated, but Kim claimed that this was in the service of making them stars. Amazonians was one of the ways he described his vision for these girls. He's a little bit of a nutcase. If you ever, if you look up an interview of him, he's definitely unhinged. Or was, he's dead. Since the girls had such distinct separate styles and were one of the first female rock bands ever, they all kind of just took on personas of other artists. Cherie was a David Bowie type, Joan was Susie Quattro, Lita a mix of Richard Black and Jimi Hendrix, Jackie was Gene Simmons, and Sandy was an amalgamation of the members of Queen. The band was signed to Mercury Records in 1976, and their first album, The Self-Titled Runaways, was released in June of that year. Jackie actually doesn't appear on this album playing bass. She was kicked out of the studio, and another male bassist was hired to play her parts, and he basically played them how he thought she would sound, and according to her, he did not nail it at all. The album was produced by Kim and featured a mix of punk and hard rock music. The album was a commercial success in Japan, where the band toured extensively, but it failed to make much of an impact in the United States. Speaking of tours, Kim promised the family members of these teenagers that while the kids were on tour, they'd be monitored, educated, and fed properly, all the while staying in nice hotels. In reality, there were no chaperones, really. There was one dude. We'll talk about him in a second. They did not have any kind of schooling. The girls were eating McDonald's, and they were staying in seedy motels. The girls grappled with homesickness as well, but were determined to return to Los Angeles as somebodies. Scott Anderson was brought on to manage the Runaways, and the late 20s quote-unquote geeky guy very inappropriately started a relationship with this 16-year-old Cherie. In fact, according to Jackie, every single member of the band, all underage, at one point or another, slept with him. Cherie was distracted by this whole situation and other members of the band and drugs, which was a frustrating thing for Lita. There were also a few of the girls who clicked off, as it became increasingly apparent that the management was keeping things from certain members of the band and essentially encouraging them to egg each other on. 
And they got physically violent with each other as well. One particular instance involved Lita staying out partying all night while they were touring in Texas. And she was sharing a room with Jackie, who she hit on the head with a phone and then tried to strangle her with the cord because she was pissed Jackie tried to make a phone call around like 11 a.m. noon. It was a reasonable request, but apparently Lita disagreed. Essentially, they were five strangers that had been brought together in the name of music. But in reality, the thing that made them unique also was tearing them apart. They were five girls from five different backgrounds and five different neighborhoods. As a result, most of them, most of the time, could be amiable with each other in these early days. But they were far from friends. They were also all competing too hard to be the prime member, a competition that was more or less encouraged by their management because if there wasn't a united front in the band, they wouldn't band together to get rid of them. Even 30 years on in the documentary Edge Play, you can still see, especially with Jackie, that there's still a touch of frustration over what happened during this era and kind of what happened and when. The only one thing that all of them could agree on was that Kim Fowley sucked. Kim held the purse strings, and the band was forced to beg for the most basic of necessities. Kim was especially hard on Cherie. There were a lot of allegations about Kim's verbal, emotional, physical, and even sexual abuse that came to light as the decades went on involving these girls. So he pretty much did whatever he wanted and whatever he could to just rile these girls up and cause a rift between everybody and everything. And this didn't stop within members of the band, mind you. Oh no, he went after the parents as well. See, by this point, the parents were starting to get a little bit concerned over what was going on behind closed doors. And anytime one of the parents would kind of be like, hey, I don't know if I I like how my daughter's being treated or what's going on here, or what's going on there. Uh, so anytime one of the parents started breathing down Kim's neck, he would basically go to the other four girls and be like, hey, so-and-so's dad is, is asking questions. And if he starts being too much of a hard ass, then all of this music stuff and all of this fame and all of these things you have goes away. So then the girls would go pick on that girl whose parents were trying to like protect their child. And then that girl, having been bullied by the other four at the assistance of Kim, essentially, would then have to go to their parents and get them to back down and basically lie and reassure them that everything was fine. So, yeah, in January 1977, the band released their second album, Queens of Noise. The album was produced by Earl Mankey and featured a more polished sound than their debut album. The album also featured the hit single Cherry Bomb, which became the band's most famous bop. Around this time, the band began hanging out with mostly male punk bands like the Ramones and, yes, even the Sex Pistols. The band embarked on a world tour to promote Queens of Noise, but tensions began to hit a fever pitch. The main catalyst, of course, other than Kim Fowley, was the drugs and alcohol, which were getting worse and worse. And the kids' parents were kept away from them, so there was nothing they could really do to stop it. By the sounds of it, a few of the mothers did try to, but they were kept away from their kids and they couldn't really do anything, which is just wild to think about given all the child labor laws there are in entertainment now, at least in the States. I don't know about international child labor laws. So, yeah. Around this time, the girls also realized they didn't need Kim and finally ganged up on him enough to ban him from being around them physically. But of course, by that time, he'd wound them all up so they could all abuse each other just fine. Nobody was enjoying their time in the band. Everybody was at each other's throats and it was all about to explode. 
during the tour of Queen of Noise, which involved a chaotic arrival in Japan at the airport that Joan would compare to that of Beatlemania, the band experienced what most of them considered the high point of their runaway's fame. They each had their own rooms for the first time. They got so many presents, some of them had to buy extra suitcases. They were invited to press junkets and to all these different special dinners. Like, they were living the high life for this very brief little window of their careers. But then the girls discovered that Cherie had been photographed individually quite provocatively for a magazine spread that they had not been made aware of. And that did not sit well. Jackie didn't talk to her for five days. Lita called her a bitch to her face. And they basically insinuated that Cherie had commissioned this. In reality, Kim had organized the shoot, not Cherie. So it wasn't her fault that this had been done, but it had successfully driven a deeper wedge between the girls once more. After becoming incredibly exacerbated, exhausted, and not liking the way she had to be to be a bass player, Jackie left the band shortly before the group was scheduled to appear at the 1977 Tokyo Music Festival. She'd been done mentally for a while, but had been convinced to stay on because Joan, by all accounts the person who served as the glue for the group, had convinced her to stay. After her favorite bass was broken over her performance and a couple more altercations with people, she used that as her final straw. She quit. She also had to beg for money to get a plane ticket home, and they just threw a 16, 17-year-old on a bus without an adult to accompany her in a country where she did not speak the language. Joan took over bass duties until the group returned home and recruited Vicky Blue. She was a breath of fresh air for the emotionally exhausted veterans of the band. Cherie then suddenly left the group after a blow-up with Lita in the fall of 1977. Cherie had announced she'd had to leave early from a photo shoot, to which she'd arrived two hours late. Cherie stormed off to the dressing room, Lita went ballistic, followed her, kicked the door in, and threw Cherie up against a wall. She offered an ultimatum, the runaways, or her family. Cherie chose her family. Joan then also took over lead vocals. Due to further disagreements over money and the management of the band, the Runaways and Kim parted ways in 1978, or 1977, depends on the source. He didn't put up much of a fight, according to the band members. The group then quickly hired Toby Mammis, who worked for Blondie and had been courting them for some time by this point. When the group split from Kim, they also parted ways with their record label Mercury, to which their deal was tied. After years of abuse and gaslighting, the girls were free, and they were only about 18 or 19 at this point, still incredibly young. The band reportedly spent a lot of this era enjoying the excess of the rock and roll lifestyle. Joan, now with the pressure of being the front woman, began imbibing even more than she already had. In 1978, the band released their third album, Waitin' for the Night. The album featured a more experimental sound than their previous albums, but failed to replicate the success of their previous albums, and the band began to really struggle. Vicky left shortly after the album's release because she'd begun having seizures while they were touring. It was from a brain injury she'd suffered as a child, it would turn out. The band then released their fourth album, and now The Runaways, in 1978. The album featured a return to their punk roots. This album also failed to make much of an impact, and the band disbanded shortly after its release. 
Lizzie Blue, their most recent bassist, left the group due to medical problems and then was briefly replaced by Lori McAllister in November 1978. Lori was referred to the band by her neighbor, who'd played keyboards on The Runaways' latest album. She would appear on stage with The Runaways during their final shows in California in December 1978 and quit in January 1979. Disagreements among the band members continued to mount and included arguments over the musical style. Joan wanted to shift towards punk and glam rock, while the others wanted to stay the course. Nobody would bend, and the band played their last concert on New Year's Eve 1978 at the Cow Palace in San Francisco and officially broke up in April 1979. After the breakup of The Runaways, Joan Jett went on to have a successful solo career, we all know I love rock and roll, as did Lita Ford. Cherie Curie pursued a career as an actress and also released several solo albums. Sandy continued to play music, but never achieved the same level of success as she'd had with The Runaways and had a really rough few decades after the band disbanded. Despite their relatively short career, just about three and a half, four and a half years, The Runaways left a lasting impact on the music industry. They were one of the first all-female rock bands to achieve mainstream success and paved the way for future female rockers. Their music continues to influence and inspire to this day. A little over 30 years after the band broke up, the Runaways biopic, titled The Runaways, was released in 2010 and was directed by music video director Floria Sigismondi, I think is how you say her name, as her directorial debut. The film tells the story of the band's formation, rise to fame, and eventual breakup, focusing mostly on the relationship between Cherie Curie and Joan Jett. The idea for the biopic had been in development since the early 2000s, with several different screenwriters and directors attached over the years. Eventually, producers John Linson and Art Linson obtained the story rights to make the film and brought on Floria. To cast the film, Floria and the producers held extensive auditions, ultimately casting Dakota Fanning as Cherie Curie and Kirsten Stewart, just off her Twilight run, as Joan Jett. Michael Shannon was cast as the band's flamboyant and toxic manager, Kim Fowley. The film was shot in location in Los Angeles and premiered at the 2010 Sundance Film Festival to positive reviews. It was released in theaters later that year and grossed a little over four million worldwide, so not great. But it is it is it's a tight little film as a indie film. Joan Jett praised the movie for its accuracy in portraying the band's experiences and struggles. In an interview with Rolling Stone, she said, I thought the film was very well done, and I thought the performances were excellent. Cherie Curie has also praised the movie for its authenticity. In an interview with Billboard, she said, quote, I think it's a great film. I think it's authentic. I think it's gritty. I think it's everything that we were. So with two of the band members singing the movie's praises, it should be pretty accurate, huh? Yeah, it is. It's pretty accurate. Also, just as a heads up, this movie was weirdly difficult to track down digitally for whatever reason. I could only find it in the U.S. rentable on Vudu of all places, and you couldn't like buy it to keep it. You had to rent it. So I ended up just being old school and whipped out my Blu-ray player as I had a physical copy of this movie. So just, you know, it's a little tricky to watch, but I, I do recommend it is. It is a good movie. So with that in mind, let's take a look at where Hollywood did some make ups to create a neater story. Spoiler alert, there's nothing terribly egregious in my opinion. 
With the exception of Dakota Fanning, who was 15, 16 during shooting, the actress's cast to play the members of the Runaways is in a way an inaccuracy, I suppose, as the rest of them were all like 19, 20 years old when making the film. So older than the, their real life counterparts. Child actor labor laws are a huge pain in the ass, so this isn't surprising. That's why all high schoolers in movies and TV look too old. It's because they are. They don't. You don't want a, a, a gaggle of of children because it just takes forever. Another thing that's off is the portrayal of Cherie's relationship with her twin sister Marie. In the film, Marie is depicted as basically being a little bit jealous of her sister's success with the Runaways, but in reality, Marie was very supportive of her sister's career and she had her own stuff going on like in the film they see her kind of trying to like interject herself into the band but this didn't happen in real life the runaways also portrays sheree as having a highly dysfunctional relationship with her parents which is not entirely accurate either while there were some conflicts between sheree and her parents they were overall supportive of her musical career if wary of kim Joan Jett is shown in the film as being the major driving force behind the Runaways' formation. While she played a significant role in the band's success, as I mentioned earlier, the idea for the band actually came from Kim Fowley and Sandy Perlman. And of course, Sandy West when she approached him with it. In the film, Joan approaches Kim with the idea to form an all-girls rock band, which he had never even considered. Right then and there, he introduces her to Sandy, which of course didn't happen. They met each other over the phone the following day. Jackie would not allow her name to be used in the film, even though she technically performed under a stage name. Fox is not her real last name. So instead, her character is renamed Robin Robbins. The film also shows the Runaways performing their hit song Cherry Bomb at one of their first gigs at the Whiskey A Go-Go, when in fact they didn't start performing that song until after they had recorded their debut album. As portrayed in the film, that song in fact was written during Cherie's audition for the band. And while there are many claims in the film that the Runaways were the first all-female rock band, that's not accurate. The Runaways were certainly pioneers in the field, of course, but there were other all-female rock bands before them, notably Fanny and the Pleasure Seekers. Obviously, probably haven't heard of them, but they, they were out there. They were doing it. The film also shows the Runaways leaving a tour with Cheap Trick after getting into a fight with them. They aren't mentioned by name, but you can kind of figure out based on the timeline that it's probably supposed to be them. In reality, there is no record of the Runaways getting into any physical altercation with any band they toured with. The film also hints at a romantic relationship between Joan and Sheree, but in reality, they just hooked up a few times, according to Sheree. It's far more charged in the film than what Sheree claims happened in real life. The band is also depicted recording their debut album in this swanky recording studio, when in reality, they recorded most of their first album in a small, cramped rehearsal space. While the film shows the Runaways touring in Japan after their first album, they didn't actually tour Japan until after their second album was released when they had a firm, like, fan base in Japan. And in the film, the band shows the Runaways' international tour as a bit of a disaster, including Cherie fainting and being accosted by paparazzi after she falls out of an elevator from drugs. While the film shows the band struggling with language barriers and cultural differences while on tour, which did happen, in reality, their international tour was a great success and helped cement their status as a popular rock band. It just didn't happen after the first album. Also, from what I could find, their hotel room was never broken into by rabid fans banging on a door. 
The Runaways were also portrayed as being relatively unknown in the United States in the film, which is also not entirely accurate. While the band was more popular in Japan and Europe comparatively, they still had a following in the United States and were able to sell out shows in the major cities. The film also portrays Kim Fowley as having a much larger role in the band's creative process than he actually did. While Kim definitely played an important role in the band's formation and early success, he didn't have as much involvement in the band's songwriting or musical arrangements, save for the very, very early days, especially after they banned him from being around them. Joan's substance abuse issues are downplayed, focusing on Cherise instead. In fact, one of the leading reasons for the band breaking up was the drug use, and the remaining members had known that if they could just take a break from the rock and roll life, they could get clean. Most of them did struggle for years to come, though, unfortunately. And of course, the timeline of events in the film is condensed for dramatic effect. For example, the film implies that the Runaways broke up immediately after Cherie left the band, when in reality, as you heard, they continued to perform and release albums for almost a full two years after her departure. Kim was also not present when Cherie quit the band, as depicted in the film. He'd called her when she returned home. He also kind of acts as a catalyst for the fight, had nothing to do with him, had nothing to do with what they argued over in the film, just completely fabricated for the movie. Frankly... Of all the films we covered this month, The Runaways was probably the closest to the actual story than any of the others. It was pretty, from what I could find and what I researched and what I saw when I watched the movie, most of it was pretty dead on. You know, and the things I just mentioned, pretty minor, I think. So yeah, The Runaways paved the way for female rock and rollers the world over. Their music is still heard regularly through the airwaves, despite the fact they've not played together for over 40 years. Thankfully, there's a biopic out there that pretty accurately shows the struggles these badass women had blazing that rocky trail. My name is Shuri, and my life was ready for a change. It really looks terrible. Good. It all started with Joan. I'm Joan Jack. I want to start an all-go rock band. Once we met. We love your look. We are choosing you to be a part of rock and roll history. We did what no one else thought we could do. You know how many mams think they're going to make it? Well, excuse me if I don't want to work at the puppin' fries for the rest of my life. People said we were a bad influence. Open up, you filthy vomit. But who are they to tell us that? What is this? It ain't baby champagne. We were about to make rock and roll history. We did it. Mercury Records. We got signed. We got and that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You could check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I didn't do coffee today. Just water because I'm still travel dehydrated, so probably not a good idea to drink coffee. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. April is a five-Sunday month, so no episode next week. But next month, since we're likely about to have another one, we're going to look into Hollywood unions and three of the biggest union strikes Hollywood has ever experienced. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.